news and information. This is Radio 3. Good morning, this is Radio 3, live from Hong Kong. The time's 8.03 on Thursday, the 10th of November. This is Peter Lewis with the day's business and finance headlines on Money Talk. In crucial midterm elections in the United States, a predicted so-called red wave has failed to materialise as Democrats avoided sweeping losses, leaving control of Congress in the balance. Republicans are expected to win a far smaller majority in the House of Representatives than opinion polls were projecting and control of the U.S. Senate hinges on three hard-fought states where winners have yet to be declared, Arizona, Georgia and Nevada. But the final result may not be known for several weeks as the race in Georgia goes to a runoff on December the 6th. Producer prices in China have fallen into deflation for the first time since December 2020. The producer price index, which reflects the prices that factories charge wholesalers for products, fell 1.3% year-on-year. China's Consumer Price Index climbed 2.1% from a year earlier, easing from a 29-month high of 2.8% in September. The world of digital assets has been rocked by the collapse of FTX, one of the largest crypto exchanges, which suffered a liquidity crisis after facing a sudden surge in client withdrawals. The world's other major crypto exchange, Binance, had agreed a takeover of FTX, but it's now backed out of the deal a day after announcing it saying FTX's issues were beyond its ability to help. FTX customers can now be on the hook for steep losses. The gap between liabilities and assets at FTX has been reported at more than six billion US dollars. And the latest twist in the crisis at FTX has caused the price of cryptocurrencies to plunge further this morning. On today's Money Talk, we're joined by wealth investment strategist Enzio von Fahl and Andrew Sullivan, Managing Director at Outset Global. And reporting from the COP27 conference in Egypt is Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange. Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. US stocks fell sharply on Wednesday following the inconclusive midterm elections and a sell-off in the cryptocurrency markets. The S&P 500 shed 2.1% to 3,749. The Dow fell 647 points, or 2%, to 30,514. The decline was led by Disney, which fell over 13% after the entertainment giant missed analyst estimates for both sales and earnings. The Nasdaq Composite Index slid 2.5% to 10,353. The Pan-European Stock 600 Index dropped a third of a percent. London's FTSE 100 closed 0.1% lower. Hong Kong stocks fell on Wednesday after data from the mainland showed producer prices slipping into deflation for the first time in almost two years, suggesting Chinese manufacturers are losing pricing power. The Hang Seng Index declined for a second day, losing 199 points or 1.2% to 16,359. The Hang Seng Tech Index retreated 1.9%. On the mainland, the Shanghai Composite Index fell half a percent to 3,048. 
shares of property developers soared after China expanded a key financing support program designed for private firms, including real estate companies, in a move to help developers sell more bonds and ease their liquidity woes. The credit support program was increased to 250 billion yuan. That's about 34.5 billion US dollars from 160 billion yuan. The Hang Seng Mainland Properties Index jumped 4.3%. Shares of SIFI surged almost 29%, but they're still down almost 90% over the past year. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil settled almost 3% lower at $92.65 a barrel. Gold is trading slightly weaker at $1,706 an ounce. And the US 10-year Treasury bond yield declined three basis points to 4.1%. The US dollar, that's rebounded after three straight down days. The euro this morning at parity with the dollar. The Japanese yen is trading at 146.28. One British pound buys $1.13.5 and eight Hong Kong dollars and 92 cents. Offshore Chinese yuan sits at 7.27 versus the dollar. And Bitcoin has plunged below $16,000 after Binance's announcement. It currently trades 15% lower at $15,800, its lowest level since November 2020. And in Asian stock markets this morning, down in Australia, uh, the SX200 is off half a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 is down 1%. The Gosby in South Korea uh, has declined about three quarters of a percent. And futures markets pointing to a loss of about 260 points for the Hang Seng at the Open this morning. with us this Thursday morning as he is every Thursday wealth investment strategist Enzio von Farr morning Enzio morning to you Peter and joining him is Andrew Sullivan managing director at Outset Global morning to you Andrew good morning and let me start with the midterm elections get your thoughts on that we didn't get this so-called red wave that the uh, the opinion polls were predicting so it means probably uh, that the Republicans are going to have a, a small um, a small majority in the House. Um, the Senate is up for um, up for grabs. So it looks like we're going to have divided governments once again, with one party controlling the House and possibly another uh, controlling the Senate. What's that going to mean, both both in terms of sort of economic policy and also how the markets are going to react to that? Not a whole lot. I th- I really think that the U.S. elections are a very overrated event. They're not going to change America's economic time in the least. They're not going to change the hatred of China in the least. America's politics have been polarized ever since Mr. Trump took over anyway. So I'm of the view that these elections, they're nice to know, but really not need to know because there's nothing decisive that's happened. It's, as you said, they're, they're kind of both they're sort of at the razor's edge on both sides of, of the, the House and the Senate. Yeah, I think it's not going to make an awful lot of difference to their policy. I mean, divided government just means that probably some of the uh, um, you know st- infrastructure bills, spending bills, just are more complicated and involve more horse trading. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. it, it's generally felt though that business likes a divided government for that reason. Um, but I think at the current stage, where you know the U.S. is facing a, a recession, you want to be able to know that some of the government spending, certainly on things like infrastructure, could be implemented quite quickly to uh, to help the economy generally. The, the big issue in voters' minds, according to opinion polls, um, certainly on the economic side anyway, was, uh, was inflation, the surging cost of living there. 
Um, President Biden says he's got the message. Uh, Republicans say they will come up with policies uh, to combat it. But what sort of policies can the two parties agree uh, to actually deal with this? Well, again, I get back to my old chestnut that we have a supply-side inflation that is very alive and kicking with oil, with copper, with people not wanting to work blue-collar jobs anymore. So you have a recession in white-collar jobs, but not blue-collar jobs. So I don't really think that other than just riding it out and increasing the supply that you're going to get rid of inflation and get that um, underlying growth inflation down to 2%, the thing that we talked about last week. I think it's going to be very difficult, and I think the, the the key thing at the moment, certainly for a lot of investors, is that you know that dollar strength and the impact that that has on yes. global commodities. Um, and I think that the other, the biggest thing, I suppose, for a lot of investors is that that you know investing in the U.S. at the moment, earnings have been good, the dollar is strong, mm. it, it's seen as a safe haven. But should that turn, then there's going to be a massive run for the door. It is turning, isn't it? Because yes. um, earnings are declining. I think uh, it was Goldman Sachs who are predicting now zero growth um, in, in earnings in the, in the final quarter of the year. Um, that, that is turning, isn't it? Uh, analysts are going to have to revise down uh, their EPS forecast. Well, the OECD, you know, which is a wonderful lagging indicator, they've already been saying recession for a long time. We've obviously been calling for stagflation for quite a while. So it's of little surprise that profits are going down um, and again, I don't think that the election is going to change that one iota, mm. the, the election results, I'm sorry. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's really, really a matter of, you know, are we going to get stagflation? Are we going to get a recession? Is it going to be a hard landing or soft landing? I mean, all those things really are up for grabs at the moment. Um, and there's no clear-cut decision of which way it's going to go. But I think, generally speaking, you're going to see investors you know, maintain with US stocks as being the safest haven mm. that's out there at the moment. Um, but once that changes, then... Uh, and, and I think the real problem is it's very difficult to see anywhere in the world that's actually a, a, you know, a, a sparkling buy at the moment. Mm. Um, it could well be that you know, the time is coming for Japan with the weak yen uh, and good prospects there, that that could be something that comes back onto people's radar screen, something we haven't seen for a while. And India, I believe. And India, yes. I mean, that's, that's looking like, uh, you know, it's a real growth story now, isn't it? It's, it's, uh... Well, there was a very interesting article in the FT just yesterday by the obviously very good um, Asia economist of Morgan Stanley, and he was saying that um, the, the policy mix of India is really growth-friendly, whilst that of China really isn't growth-friendly. The, the Indians want to attract overseas investments. The Chinese don't. I mean, there's decoupling. We all know that. Um, India's median age is 11 years younger than China's. Step in that growth hospital, China, where demography is really going down. I, I forecast a trend growth of 1% per year. And finally, India's, India's growth projection is 80% faster than China's. They're supposed to be growing 6.5% in the coming decade, whilst China's 36 So there you have it. What do, you, what do you think about that, Andrew? There was I saw that article in the FT uh, yes. yesterday about India. It was very interesting, really, yeah. wasn't it? Well put. I think the, I think the, the key thing there is that you know India is really looking looking for uh, people to come there. I mean, we're already seeing yes. Apple looking to move its production to there. Um, it's it's probably in the same situation that you know we saw China ten fifteen years yes. ago when they were really trying to change the economy, um, and India is now well placed. Uh, both market-wise and uh, economically, um, to, to, to step into the place that China doesn't want to find itself. Well, what about China? We had um, some economic data out yesterday. Producer prices 
uh, back in deflation. For the first time since 2020, the producer price index fell 1.3% year on year compared to a 1.5% expected drop, but that is down from 0.9% a month earlier. Um, and the consumer price index, that climbed 2.1% from a year earlier, but it was slower than the 2.4% forecast uh, by, by analysts. Food prices, though, remain elevated. They're up 7% year-on-year. Yeah, year. Pork expected. accelerated 51.8% in October, the other highest rate um, all year. It seems this is a strong disinflationary signal, isn't it, that we're, we're getting from China at the moment. I think it's very difficult because you know, China isn't a normal economy at the moment. While you're still having you know, lockdowns uh, throughout the country, it, it makes uh, forecasting and the, the data uh, mm. very cloudy, to say the right. least. I mean, part of the reason that food prices were so high is, you know, we have to remember they've still got swine flu there. Uh, we, we tend to forget that they haven't managed to, uh, to restock those hog uh, herds yet. Uh, they're also having you know, transportation difficulties with food. And again, a lot of food in China is fresh food. Uh, it doesn't, they don't have huge refrigerated lorries going around the country. So, you know, you're, you're getting the lockdowns causing these knock-on effects into the rest of society. The other point that I'd add to, to um, Andrew's point is that the waning imports mirror weaker domestic demand. So the, the fact that inflation is down is mirrored in the fact that imports are down because if imports are down, there's just less domestic demand, which after all is about 70% of, of any eco economic growth rate. And, and that, a lot of that is coming from the, you know, the, the undermining of the housing market and the lack of confidence there. You know, if people aren't buying houses, they're not buying things to put in houses, uh, and that's going to have a knock-on effect. This ought to be easy to fix, couldn't it? Because it's demand-based, so it's really a choice mm. of, of policy. It's much uh, harder to fix the US's problem of, of inflation. But here, uh, this is a policy choice, and China could change it, couldn't they, if they wanted to fix this demand problem? I just think that China's priorities have changed, and that was, again, something we alluded to last week, that, that Xi's logic, if there, you know, with any leader, if there is one, um, is that he really wants to, to push the social side of the equation as opposed to the economic side. Now, I know that, one's, that you can't really differentiate the two because the one helps that begets the other, but it just seems as if the social policy, the redistribution, the common prosperity themes are much, much bigger on his policy agenda now than economic growth and stuff like that. And are they contrary to economic growth, common prosperity? I think it can be. Um... You know, I think you, you disincentivize a lot of people by a lot of the policies that we've seen enacted over the, over the last couple of years. And I think more importantly, the heavy handedness with which it's been done, again, is, has worried a lot of people and it's worried a lot of investors. Certainly a lot of foreign investors have stepped away just because, you know, there, there is no clarity on how that policy is achieved or, you know, any steps of warning that the policy isn't going to change back overnight. And this is affecting um, global supply chains. We had Apple warning that its iPhone production has been disrupted uh, by the lockdown in Zhengzhou, where um, Foxconn has its iPhone City, the largest iPhone plant um, in the world. This is all coming, of course, just ahead of peak shopping season um, in the US. It does seem like that this is... Um, having a global impact. More and more companies are reporting problems from it. Well, I think there's two things. I mean, we're also seeing, you know, um, 
on high looking at moving that, some of that production into India, as we were discussing earlier. But you've still got the fact that a lot of the basic components come out of China. So whereas at the moment they're made within China, shipped within China and assembled within China, um, that will change. But it doesn't alter the fact that getting some of those components is going to be difficult because of these lockdowns. Hence the structural inflation again, just because there's a supply-side bottleneck. Mm. And what about the markets? What is the impact going to be on the, on the local markets here? We had a stunning week um, last week where um, the Hang Seng Index, um, it, it was up, uh, what was it? It was up about 6% mm. in just five, uh, five days, but it appears to have stalled out um, in, in, the last, uh, in the last couple of days or so. That's, uh, so it was uh, th- 13% in five days, the Hang Seng rose. It added about 350 billion Hong Kong dollars in market capitalization, but that seems to have stalled in the last couple of days. So where do we go from here? Down. I think the, th- the trouble was that the, what the rally that we saw was a lot of that was short covering and a lot of it was mainland investors using the stock connect to hedge the week you on. Um, and, and, and once they've done that, uh, certainly we've seen the volumes in the daily market drop back down again. So whereas last week we might have been trading somewhere between 150 million a day to 180 billion a day, we're back down to the 100, 104, 105 level. Um, so you're going to see this period where we, we probably just track sideways or drift lower. Uh, and a lot of that will be you know, driven by what we see from the inflation data from the, uh, from the US tonight, uh, the impact on interest rates here, uh, the impact that that's going to have on companies really and i think the thing going forward is you know we've had free money for the last 10 years effectively mm. now that money is going to start being priced properly then companies are going to have to perform properly or they're going to go bankrupt um and i think we're going to have to see a little bit more due diligence being taken place by investors uh in sorting out which are the good companies that's always again my old mother-in-law who's um keeps on saying that when interest rates are low, the wrong wrong people get rich. I would add to what Andrew's saying, also, of course, this whole effect of decoupling means that they're going to be, there's the whole growth cycle is just being disrupted at a very, very fundamental level. Um, One emanation of that is, of course, the supply side disruptions, but it's, it's industrial relocation, what we're really talking about. And the, and the markets do still seem to want to believe that we're ultimately um, sort of edging slowly towards an end of, um, of COVID, uh, zero COVID on the mainland. Do you think that's going to continue to be a theme and every now and then boost the markets? Well, that's, when there's cool, a that's cool to Ross again, that you're in denial. Then you, at the end of the day, you, then you bargain a little bit, then you pray a little bit, and then it's, at the end you accept. And I, from what we've been reading in the Western press, uh, he certainly is not going to back down on his COVID policy. Are we looking in the wrong place, though? The Western press maybe is not the right place no, to work out to, what's to his, going no, on. No, to, to his pronouncements, so they're pretty good. And I think the thing is that you know he has he's nailed his colours to the flagpole on this one. So, uh, as in all things in China, the higher up the decision has come from, the more difficult it is to change it. Mm. Um, and I think the thing will be, you know, we're going into their winter season. I think they, they're looking for excuses to change policies, but it's rather like changing the the course of a a super tanker they'll have to take little steps but we're going to have probably a bigger flu problem this year because all the resources from have been allocated towards covid the rest of the health service is under a lot of 
pressure. Local authorities are under pressure because they can't afford to do the testing anymore. And to pass the cost of testing onto the general public would just cause an immediate backlash of, of the kind that they don't want. So they know they have to change policy, but they're not going to do anything dramatic. It's going to be slow changes. Uh, and I don't think we're really going to see a change probably until a, a, a significant change anyway, and probably till at least the middle of next year. That sort of face, face also comes into this slow boat to China, I think. It's just, and that's why it was encouraging that, that Scholz, at least the German um, boss, has, has pushed through that the expats in China can take Pfizer medication. But what about the locals? Okay, well, thank you for your thoughts. You heard their wealth investment strategist, Enzio von Fahl, and Andrew Sullivan, who is Managing Director at Outset Global. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. RTHK Radio 3. The time's 8.23 and on the phone from the COP27 Summit, which is taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt, is Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange. Morning, Lawrence. Morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So tell me a little bit about what's happening at COP27 and particularly the mood there, because we've heard a lot of these apocalyptic statements, dire warnings about what's going to happen if global warnings, uh, warming isn't reduced. We've already been told um, at, at the summits that uh, the world is on track to miss those targets already. Um, the world's warmed up already by about one and a half degrees centigrade. So what's the mood like there? So the mood here is quite tense indeed because three key things in this COP is happening. The first one, like what you mentioned, 1.5 degree will definitely miss it because it's like no one is really willing to step on the brake and then slow that, provide a more ambitious NDC to really reduce the emission sharply to really meet with the 1.5 degree tipping point. Mm. And then at the meantime, we actually is adding more fuel on the fire so that we definitely need to channel capital at least US 100 billion a year on the climate finance. However, this kind of bank track, the global law is not really willing to take on it. And then global south is keep a lot of pressure on the global north country to really ask them to pay for that. Mm. And but there's still a strong hope here because the business sector in this COP is really united. And then they try to push the government no longer to discuss about the principle. It's time to translate the pledge to action. Mm. So this is this is basically the the contentious issue of loss and damage here, isn't it, that you're talking about, where, in effect, wealthy countries fund poor countries who are suffering uh, the consequences of climate change. Poor countries aren't the ones who are producing uh, all this carbon in the atmosphere, but they're certainly suffering the consequences of that. Do you think governments now, from what you're hearing there, are willing to move forward with some sort of scheme uh, to help uh, poorer countries who are suffering so much? I feel um, because in this year, actually, the climate impact is quite severe. For example, it's like nearby like 150 million people with severe hunger in South in Africa 
and then the record flight then hit Pakistan in this September. Mm. So that is like country is still is like warming up in a really late light of negotiation at the start in the cup here. I I cannot see any chance to can really come up a alignment in this cup because the global loss country is also is impact partly like the Ukrainian crisis, Ukrainian through the Ukrainian war, and then the energy pricing is surging. So that is like it will just maybe the end up the angle of the shamel shake. We will just like to start the negotiation, but we will not really definitely to come up a certain really concrete funding to figure out how to find like the hundred of billion needed in the next few decades. So are um, are countries, are governments using the war in Ukraine as an excuse to not move forward with this? We heard um, the former Prime Minister of the UK, Boris Johnson, he was saying the UK simply can't afford it because of the uh, economic situation it was in. Are, are countries using that as an excuse? I, I think so. Definitely, it's more like a excuse because, for my perspective, actually the global lost country can think that and phrase that as an opportunity. For example, it's like really partner with the global short country to think of like some insurance mechanism and then think about how to leverage the private capital to really like to use the insurance type. Um, tools to really help to insurance the uncertainty of the future and then to build um, a more like to repay in case global south face um, natural disaster and then can use the insurance to pay back um, to compensate and then to help them to rebuild and redevelopment. And businesses, are, are they on side with this? I get the impression that large global corporations do want to do something. They're willing uh, to work in partnership with governments to try and come up with some sort of loss and damage scheme that they can help finance. Yes, definitely. That's why you can see that um, this time, actually, the banking, the banking, and then the big corporate is really take active initiative in this cup, and then in. Some of the corporate already mentioned is really clear to articulate that in this club, they no longer need the pledge. They want a really concrete action so that you can see that it's like there's something really happen in this club. For example, it's like a bank and then already committed is if the MDB invest like 10 billion, uh, 10, 10 billion and they will invest 10 billion on like the loss and damage and the other type of climate finance. Mm. So tell me a little bit about um, John Kerry's proposal for um, a carbon credit scheme. What he's basically saying is uh, this scheme would help emerging economies um, attract finance to support uh, their clean energy transitions. Large companies would invest in in projects, and then uh, they would that would basically allow um, credits to be sold back to uh, to companies. Now, I know some climate activists don't like this scheme because they're saying basically, um, rather than actually offsetting emissions, they should be cut instead. But nevertheless, what do you think about this scheme? I think the carbon 
democracy definitely important because we, the whole world is lead um, to really internalize the carbon externality into the business decision. Once we price in the carbon emission, and then it will really encourage the new technology to develop because at that time, if we put the carbon um, pricing into the balance sheet, it will really change the investor decision-making process. Okay, well, Lawrence, thank you very much indeed for giving us an update there. That's Lawrence Yu, Executive Director at Civic Exchange, on the phone from the COP27 Summit at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. Let's take a final look at the markets for this morning. First of all, in Australia, that's uh, the ASX 200 is down a third of a percent. In Japan, the Nikkei 225 has slid 1% shortly after the open. The Cosby in South Korea is down 0.1%. Looks like the Hang Seng is going to slip about 240, 250 points or so at the open. And I'll be back tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock to tell you more about that. Coming up after the news is back chats with Janice Wong and Janice, uh, Jenny Lamb. The weather forecast. Uh, it's going to be fine. Maximum temperature about 28 degrees, a couple of degrees higher in the new territories. And the outlook is for it to remain fine and rather warm during the day in the next couple of days. Temperature right now is 24 degrees, 82% relative humidity. 8.31, here's Tom Warden with the Half Hour News. The founder of Hong Kong Outdoors, Martin Williams, has agreed with calls from a lawmaker to reopen campsites. DAB lawmaker Ben Chan made the call yesterday after the recent reopening of public barbecue pits as the government slowly eases pandemic measures. Mr. Williams criticized what he called a mishmash of pandemic policies and told RTHK it didn't make sense for the government to allow up to 240 people to attend a banquet while not allowing access to outdoor campsites. The amount of outdoor transmission is tiny. So the fact that you can go to maybe a banquet with maybe 240 people indoors, which is much more dangerous for catching COVID, than go camping in a pretty wild place. It's just an the barbecuing. There's never really been any scientific soundness or common sense to this. President Joe Biden has delivered his first remarks since Tuesday's midterm elections. He said the vote was a good day for democracy, and voters had spoken clearly about their concerns, including inflation. It was a good day, I think, for democracy. And I think it was a good day for America. Our democracy has been tested in recent years, but uh, with their votes, uh, the American people have spoken and proven once again that democracy is who we are. Republicans are expected to take control of the House of Representatives, but Mr. Biden said a giant so-called red wave did not happen, as had been predicted. The president said he was prepared to work with the Republicans and would invite leaders of both parties to the White House to discuss how that could be achieved. Just weeks after President Putin announced he was annexing Kherson and that it would be forever Russian, Moscow has said it's pulling its troops from the Ukrainian city. Kherson is the only provincial capital Russia has managed to capture since the start of its assault. But over the past weeks, Ukraine has been conducting a counteroffensive to push them from the area. The move follows a televised meeting with Russia's military commander in Ukraine, Sergei Sarivikin, who recommended what he called a difficult decision. 
I propose that we take up defensive positions along the left bank of the Dnipro River. I understand that this is a very difficult decision. At the same time, we will save, most importantly, the lives of our troops and the overall combat effectiveness of the troops. In addition, it will free up some forces who can then be used for active operations, including offensive ones, on other fronts in the zone of the operation. A Ukrainian presidential adviser has reacted cautiously to the Russian announcement. Bao Tong, who served as secretary to the former Communist Party leader Zhao Ziyang, has died in Beijing at the age of 90. Writing on Twitter, his children said Bao had passed away peacefully. Bao was a member of the 13th Central Committee of the Communist Party. Both Zhao and Bao fell from grace over the 1989 student protests on the mainland. You're listening to the news from RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm